1 John chapter 5. Even though I told you chapter 3, you should have known where I was going. Verse 13. I love when the author of the letter makes it so clear in his intention of why he is writing this letter. And he says very clearly here, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So number one, who is he writing to? Believers. He wants believers in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to know, underline that word because that's the key word, to know for certain without any doubt, without any ambiguity, that you have eternal life. That is the purpose in which he wrote this letter. It dovetails from his gospel in which he wrote for the purpose that one would read it in hopes that they would come to understand and to believe that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. And now that you have come to that realization that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God, He now wants you to know for sure that you have eternal life. This is an important question, isn't it? It's something that we must wrestle with and wrestle through here on this earth because we know the time is short. Either we are going to be interrupted by the Lord's return or we are going to uh, come to the end of our life and meet him through our death. At that point, it becomes too late to change our decision in which we have made and substantiated here on this earth. If we are in Christ, we are going to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. If we are not in Christ, we are going to be ushered in to an area, a place that God created for the devil and his angels, a place called hell. That is the reality of Christianity where we spend eternity. And John wants us to know that we have eternal life. And what is eternal life? That's a question that many uh, cannot answer as believers in Jesus Christ. They feel it is simply a term that is used for the duration of time in which we will spend in eternity. What does eternity mean? I love these definitions. Eternity. You know, they describe it with the exact same word that they use within the sentence. But John tells us in his gospel that eternal life is to know God. And I think it's going to take an eternity to get to know God, don't you? Once we are confronted with him, once we stand before him, once we are brought into his presence and we occupy the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus is going to create, God is going to create, It'll take an eternity to know the depths of God, even though we will be changed and we will be transformed into his image and we will be, we will know him as we are known. That eternity is still needed to truly appreciate all that God is. John wants us to know. He writes this letter because there is a departure taking place within his time. Many are leaving the Christian faith, showing that they were truly never of the Christian faith by doing so. 
they are being persuaded by individuals who believe that they have special knowledge, special revelation concerning God and the salvation that he gives. And as these individuals are drawing people away from the body of Christ, John is writing this letter to apprehend that uh, those who are departing and to encourage those who are standing true. And as John is writing, he is giving individuals the opportunity to examine their own life, to see if they are in the faith, if they are in Christ or not. And he uses three tests throughout the entire letter. He introduces these three tests in chapters 2, and then he expounds on them in chapters 3 and 4, concluding, of course, in chapter 5. And these tests have to do with our moral responsibilities, number one. How we conduct ourselves morally. And the premise in which he argues from is this, that if we are a new creation in Jesus Christ, we should not conduct ourselves as if we are still the old creation from the fall. Make sense? Number two, there's a social understanding. Do we now love our brothers and sisters in Christ as Jesus Christ has loved us? Or do we disdain our brothers and sisters in Christ, which would indicate that we truly have not been born again? So there's a social assurance that we are confronted with. Then there is the theological. Number three, a true understanding of the true Messiah, our true Savior, Jesus Christ. A true theological understanding of Jesus Christ comes through the Scriptures, Old and New Testament alike. If we want to know who God is, we must first know who Jesus Christ is. Why do I say that? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, correct? So if I want to understand God the Father, who I have not seen, Jesus is saying, I will allow you to understand and to know and to interact with God the Father through me. I am the perfect representation of God the Father. Know me and you will know the Father. So as believers, we must ask ourselves a moral question, a social question, and a theological question to help us understand if we are truly in Christ. Now, am I saying that these things are works that we do to obtain and maintain salvation. I've said this enough, what is the answer? No, absolutely not. Salvation is a gift of God that we embrace by faith because it has simply been given to us by the grace of God. But John is saying that if we have truly been born again, that we should, as family members of God, begin to resemble God in our conduct and appearance in the manner in which we conduct ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. It is so important for you and I to understand that if we've truly experienced God, if we truly have been born again, we will not live as we once have lived. That's what he is saying here. As we come to the third chapter of John's letter, bringing us through chapter 2, introducing us to to the moral, to the social, to the theological aspects of assurance that we can have, 
he now expounds upon these, beginning with the moral once again. And he approaches it from a different dynamic. He approaches it from a different perspective. And he makes this statement. It's a doxology of praise, these first three verses. And then he qualifies and he kind of sums up for us, verses 4 through 10, what he is actually trying to say in verses 1 through 3. And in verses 1 through 3, we start with the word, if you're using the ESV, see. And it's an imperative in the Greek. It's a command in the Greek. He wants us to know, he, that word seeing means to know and to fully understand and to appreciate what he's about to say next. I want you to see, he says, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has thus hope in Him purifies himself as He is pure." John is amazed by the manner of love that God has shown us. The manner, the type, the kind of love that God has shown us. It's as John is stepping back and he's looking at this thing uh, with awe. And he is uh, trying to comprehend all of its complex meaning. And he wants you and I to do the same. He wants you and I to understand the manner of love that was given on to us. The New King James says bestowed. I love that word. Another word that would be completely appropriate would be lavished with this type of love. And what did this love do on our behalf? It simply didn't save us. Because that would be astonishing in and of itself. If this love led Jesus Christ to the cross and through the cross, we simply obtained atonement. But it didn't end there, did it? Oh, certainly that love led him to the cross and led him to provide the atonement for our behalf. But it didn't stop there as he says, what manner of love is this that we shall be called children of God? The love not only uh, provided the atonement, but it went on to the adoption. That we've been adopted into the family of God. That as Paul says, we can cry out to him and say, Abba, Father, that we who were sinful wrecks before God in Christ can be made princes and princesses to the king. John is saying, I'm amazed by this. I'm overwhelmed by this. This is too much, Lord, for me to comprehend and to understand, but thank you for it, Lord. That's what he is saying here. And as a result of becoming a child of God, the world no longer knows us and understands us. We have become foreign to them in many ways. 
Because now we live in a manner that is unbeknownst to them, unnatural to them. For one who is uh, not a child of God will live for themselves and their self-preservation. But one who is a child of God should live selflessly, looking to self-sacrifice on the behalf of others. The world does not know us because they did not know him and recognize him for who he truly was. And in verse 2, he goes on to say, Behold, we are God's children now. When? When? Now. That is so important for you and I to understand if we are truly going to understand our identity in Jesus Christ. People are searching for identity today. They are looking for something that will distinguish them in the mass sea of conformity that we live in today within our culture. They're looking for identity. They're seeking it in one fashion or another. They want to stand out from a crowd. They want to be noticed in some way. They want to be considered special in some way. And yet the world has nothing to offer them rather other than complete and other further confusion. But Jesus says, God says, we are a child of God now. That's our identity. That's who we are. Who I am is a Christian. First and foremost, I'm a Christian American. My Christianity comes first. And as a Christian, I understand that I am a child of God and that I have responsibilities as a child of God. And John's saying that as a child of God now... We are not sure, and what will we be has not yet appeared. John knew that as a child of God that we were in a, we were, we had become, I should say, a work in progress. John knew that from the beginning of becoming a Christian, he understood that a new birth has taken form within him, and now he is changing and conforming into the image of Jesus Christ. But John is being real with us. He's saying, I don't fully understand how that's going to look at the end, but we will at the Lord's return. I believe that when we are given our bodies of immortality at the rapture of the church, We will see ourselves as God sees us. We will know him as we are known. That body, that glorified body will be given unto us. No longer subjected to sin and to death and to sickness and so forth. Sorrow and pain and sadness. To anger. Calories won't matter anymore. I see there's a lot of people here, like myself, looking forward to that day. I go out to eat with my wife and daughter. They eat and they enjoy their meal, and I gain weight. But no more pain, no more sorrow. We will be brought into that perfected place that God has for us. He desires us to know this manner of love that has brought us to this place. And as Warren Worsby said, and I love the way he put this, so I'd like to read it to you if I may. God's love for us is unique. And 1 John 3.1 may be translated, 
Behold, what peculiar, out-of-this-world kind of love the Father has bestowed on us. And while we were His enemies, God loved us and sent His Son to die for us. The whole plan of salvation, the whole wonderful plan of salvation begins with the love of God. And as a result, not only has this love moved Christ to make atonement on our behalf, but He has then adopted us that we may be called children of God. As William MacDonald wrote, he said, The thought of being born of God arrests John with such a wonder. And he calls on his readers to take a look at the wonderful love that brought us into the family of God. Love could have saved us without making us children of God. But the manner of God's love is shown in, the, in that he brought us into his family as children. Oh, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we shall be called children of God. A work has taken place now within us. And each Christian here today is a work in progress. That's why we should offer so, uh, grace to one another when we fail. Because we're all a work in progress. God is working on us each and every day, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, but we're not there yet, are we? I've never gotten an invitation to I'm completely sanctified party. I am now perfect before God here in this world. If I got a card like that, I'd have to go to the party just to see, simply see a perfect person. And now as children of God... And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, verse 2, that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies as He is pure. The return of Jesus Christ is meant to be a theology that sanctifies the believer in the progress of of changing and conforming into the image of Jesus Christ. As we hope and long for the return of Jesus Christ, we should consider ourselves that work in progress and desire to be as He is now, even though we won't obtain it until He receives us. There's a lot of confusion of what happens after a person dies. Uh, there are many who simply believe that we become little fat angels playing harps on clouds. Hopefully that's not the case, okay? I don't want to leave here and go there and be the same way. I'm sorry. Okay? I am, I am looking for that full head of hair and that perfect waistline, and I don't want a six-pack. I want a 12-pack, okay? That's what I'm looking forward to, meaning my... Maybe I should specify, uh, I'm not talking about the alcohol, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm talking about the body shape, if I have to make that clear to everybody. But Paul, he gave us an insight to what is going to occur in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would turn there with me. In fact, he is predicating this upon what Jesus said in John 14. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, 
we know that if this tent, the tent that we have, this body, that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Now this is referring to the home that Jesus spoke about in John 14. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, amen to that, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, when we became Christians, we were each given the Holy Spirit dwelling within us as a guarantee of what God was still yet going to do. In Romans 8.30, God talks about the process of salvation. Those in whom he uh, called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. That glorified body is what Paul is speaking of here. It's what John was writing about that Jesus spoke about in John 14. This glorified body that we will be given to enjoy eternity the way eternity was made to be enjoyed. Have you ever been invited to a backyard party only to discover that when you get there, it's a pool party? And you don't have the proper clothing for that party, and so you're the one person sitting outside while everybody else is enjoying the pool. That happened to me as a kid one time, and that's why it's still psychologically scarred on my mind. My mom didn't read the uh, card well enough, and I went there, and everybody else was swimming, and I was sitting there on the table doing absolutely nothing. I'm past it now. (laughs) But can you imagine showing up with the wrong attire, being invited to a wedding only discover that shorts and a t-shirt aren't acceptable? Our bodies that we currently occupy are built for this world. They are built from the material of this world. They are built to enjoy the atmosphere and the conditions of this world. Our new heavenly bodies will be created to uh, to enjoy all of eternity in its fullest. The Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee. So in verse 6, as Paul continues, he says, So we are always good of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and that not, of, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. This is what Paul is speaking of this new glorified state. This is what Paul, John is saying, we don't fully understand or comprehend at this moment, but when the Lord returns, we will. But in, but in light of that reality, and before that happens, we are going to live in accordance to what we know would be pleasing unto God. Both Paul and John say the same thing. Let us live in a manner that is pleasing to God in light of His return. That's what he is saying. 
That is what John is saying. Paul went on to say further in Philippians 3.20 to 4.1, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. But the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, knowing that this waits for us. Warren Worsby said that when we sin as believers, we are sinning against our heavenly fathers. As unbelievers, we are sinning against the law. I like what he wrote, and I want to read it to you to give you an idea of where John is going in his text. An unbeliever who sins is a creature sinning against his creator. A Christian who sins is a child sinning against his father. The unbeliever sins against the law. The believer sins against love. This reminds us of the meaning of the phrase so often repeated in the Bible the fear of the Lord. This phrase does not suggest that God's children live in an atmosphere of terror. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, as he, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.7, but rather it indicates that God's children hold their father in reverence and will not deliberately disobey him or to try his patience. I was reading a story once of a young lady who was a Christian, went on to college, and it was a secular college, and she had friends there on the campus, and one day she was invited by her friends and her boyfriend to attend a party in the area. And many of those people, those individuals, wanted to leave the party and go to the seedy bar somewhere in that college town. And this young lady said to them, And to her boyfriend, listen, I'd prefer if my boyfriend just take me home and then you guys go ahead. And they asked why. And this young lady says, well, my parents don't approve of such places. And they asked her, are you afraid that your your parents will hurt you if you go? And she said, no, I'm afraid I'll hurt my parents if I go. It is that mindset that God wants us to have towards Him. Being a child of God means that we are conscientious of the manner in which we reflect upon our Heavenly Father. If a child in that culture were to do something disrespectful, something that dishonored his parents or her parents, that child could be held absolutely guilty in criminal court. That child could be stoned possibly for what they had done. To bring dishonor upon their family was a big deal. It's something in America that we don't seem to care about. And John is writing from that perspective. Now that we know that we are children of God, let us be conscientious and know that what we do reflects upon our heavenly Father. I think of King David. When sinning with Bathsheba, thank you. It was on the tip of my tongue, really. Glad I don't speak for a living. 
Nathan the prophet came to him. And Nathan said to him, what you have done has now caused you to bring blasphemy upon God. David, it's not only how it reflects upon you for what you have done. It also reflects upon your heavenly father. Do you not understand that people looking at us, once they know and understand that we claim to be Christians and are serious about it, do you not understand that they are not only evaluating us, but they are evaluating God at that exact same time? Now you may say, that is a really heavy responsibility and I really don't want it. You know what I'm going to say to that? Tough. Why? Because we are children of God. And what we do reflects on Him. And God has given us His Word. He has given us His Spirit to accomplish this. And we won't do it perfectly all the time. But we should be consistent in our endeavors, in our conduct, to allow the world to see that we are actually someone different. And knowing that what we do not only reflects upon us, but seriously reflects upon God himself. This is what John is considering. This is what John is amazed about. This is the thesis, the premise in which John is going to now build the rest of this portion of text upon, this understanding. And as we continue now in 1 John, let us look at verse 4. As we come to verse 4, now he makes his argument. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Everyone who makes a practice, one who lives consistently in such a manner, practices, one who lives in sitting, also practices lawlessness. That word lawlessness has given some to be very confused. What does this mean? What does lawlessness mean? Well, let's think of it this way. The law was given by God, and that law was given to us that we may know and identify what sin is, correct? Lawlessness would be one operating as if there was no law, that there was no identifier of sin and the the consequences thereof. It is someone acting as if God had never put forward a moral standard. That's what lawlessness means. Lawlessness means it's as God has never put forward a moral standard. Someone living in this way regardless if they claim to be a Christian or not. Someone living in this way is practicing lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And in verse 5, you know that Jesus, He, appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. A clear indication that God, Jesus Christ, was sinless when He went to the cross. John states it there for us. And no one, verse 6, who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who is in him, no one who has a relationship with him, no one who is walking with him will keep on sinning as if that individual doesn't exist. That's what he's saying. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. I don't know how much clearer it can be than that. 
If you continue to live in an indifference towards God, if you live in a manner that's, that states or conveys that God has never set forth a moral standard, you don't know God and God is not in you. That's what he is saying there. And I think this is what we are discovering in our country today, that there are many who profess Christianity but live their life in a moral indifference towards God. John takes exception to that. John pushes the issue here. And look at what he says. Let us be absolutely clear here. They have either neither seen him nor known him. You have not experienced God. The term seeing him is not only seeing him physically, but seeing him and understanding who he is. You can see him through the profile in which the scriptures give you concerning him. You can know him through the same scriptures. And so John is writing that if one is living with an indifference towards the things of God, they haven't seen him, nor do they know him. John is clearly stating that sin is lawlessness. And John wants us to know that at the first coming of Christ, Christ appeared to take away our sins. In the Old Testament, when individuals were instructed to make sacrifices unto God, it said the blood of those animals, Rokofar, simply covered the sins of the individual temporarily. Temporarily. And that the sins were temporarily dealt with through the sacrifice of that animal. But that animal needed to be sacrificed again, or another animal had to be sacrificed again, when sin occurred again. It wasn't permanent. It wasn't final. It needed to be repeated often. The book of Hebrews in chapter 10 makes a clear-cut argument that when Jesus Christ died, he died once and for all on behalf of those who are his for the issue of sin. So let us be clear. What Jesus Christ did in the atonement was to not cover sins, kofar sins, temporarily. He washed them away. He cleansed us of those sins, past, present, and future. That's how significant, that's how incredible his sacrifice was on our behalf. And those sacrifices, those animals that were given uniquely at different times of the year through the Jewish calendar, through the Mosaic covenant, Jesus, interestingly enough, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is sitting in the temple during one of those times when he makes that statement. Come to me, ye who are burdened under heavy laden, and I shall give you rest. And the, and the picture is, the illustration is, that he sees these people with the animals around their neck, carrying them, waiting in line for hours to bring them to the priest to have their sins kofard, covered for a temporary moment, a period of time. And Jesus is saying, come to me and I'll do it once and for all. That's what he is saying here. I like what Isaiah said. Out of the anguish of his souls he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and they shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession 
for the transgressor. Isaiah, 700 years before the time of Christ, says these words. And this is what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, as Warren Worsby then went on to state. He says, There is more in the death of Christ on the cross than simply our salvation from judgment, as wonderful as that is. Through his death, Christ broke the power of the sin principle in our life. Christ not only died for me, but I died with Christ. Now I can yield myself to him and sin will not have dominion over me. Christ has freed me to no longer have to do those things I was in bondage to do. And John went on to say in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He is writing to you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. I am constantly being asked... Do I believe in a literal devil? And I say to them, how can I not believe in a literal devil if I believe in a literal God? I certainly believe in a literal devil who was once an angel who once sinned and was cast down by God desiring to be God himself and to be worshipped and praised as God. The devil is the ruler of this world. And from the very beginning... From the garden to the end of days, Satan is the great opposer to all things that are God. The thinking of God, the word of God, the people of God, etc. Satan is opposed to it all. The ruler of this world keeps people away from God in a, in a stupor of blindness that only God can remove from their eyes. Satan, as the ruler of this world, has deceived many into thinking that what they are doing is right only to find that they are on a broad way that leads to destruction. But narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, as Jesus stated. The devil is real. But Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. It doesn't mean that he annihilated him, for for Satan is still at work today, but he has rendered him impotent. He has rendered him and robbed him of his power, I should say. Satan is doomed to destruction. And though the ultimate war and battle has been fought and won and Jesus Christ is our victor, the battle rages between now and to the end when Satan is cast out of heaven. What do you mean cast out of heaven? Revelation tells us clearly that Satan is in heaven accusing you before the Father of being a sinner And therefore, you have no right to be in God's presence whatsoever because of your sin. Is Satan right in saying that? Is Satan right in saying that? Yes. But if you are in Jesus Christ, Christ stands before us as our propitiation, our advocate before the Father. And as we stand there guilty, it is Christ who stands up on our behalf, one of the royal courts stepping forward as we learned in 1 John, 
And he stands before the Father and myself. And the Father sees me through Christ, who has imputed to me his righteousness, who has robed me with his righteousness and his purity and his holiness and his perfection. And God the Father says, innocent. Let us not forget that. That not only did Jesus Christ forgive us of our sins, but he also draped and robed us with his righteousness. It's only because of him that we can stand in the presence of God the Father. It's only because of him, nothing of ourselves. But those in the world who are not living within the kingdom of God are living under the sway of the wicked one on that broad path whose end is destruction. In fact, Jesus, rebuking the religious leaders at the time of his first coming, said that if you were of me, you would know who I am, but you are not of me, for your father is the devil. Jesus didn't go to the politically correct class either as he rebuked the religious leaders for not only leading themselves into destruction, but those who follow, as he said in John's gospel. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do I believe in a literal Satan? Absolutely, positively, yes. Our great adversary, one who seeks whom he may devour, but yet as one who stands in Christ, he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Praise God. Amen. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John states here very clearly that once an individual born again, his conscience has been revived the spirit has been resurrected and we cannot keep in the same manner in which we originally walked with that within us. We just can't do it. Our conscience won't allow us. And when we do, we need to, we have the urgency to know that we need to get right with God by confessing our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No one who is born of God can continue in the indifference towards the moral standing of God. Again, does this moral standing save us? No, but it proves that we are saved. This moral standing separates us from the world and shows, us, shows the world that we are truly a follower, a, a, a subject of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but not only a subject as we have learned, we are a child of God. 
We are not merely a subject. Now think of a movie now set into the Middle Ages and there were those that were, you know, mere peasants that were always in the fields working or had no clout or they had no standing before the king and they could never go and approach the king directly because they were unable to do so. And then there were those of the royal court who surrounded the king constantly. By becoming a child of God, God took us from the place of obscurity and made us a child of God. He allows us to stand in the courtroom of God. This is why the Hebrew writer says we can go boldly into the throne room of God whenever we desire. The privilege that we have as being a child of God carries with it an immense responsibility along with it. Let us close by looking at this last verse together. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. Listen to that statement again. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is saying it's clear. That if one is going to continue living in the moral indifference towards God, it is a demonstration that he has never truly been born again. In Christ, we have been made completely new. That new creation that Paul speaks about. In Christ, we have a new standing before God that is provided to us by the justification that we find in Christ. In Christ, we have a new position before God that is called sanctification, where He's taking us out of the world and conforming us into His image through the Spirit and the Word of God that we may reflect Him to a fallen world. But in Christ, we also have a new nature before God. That is what regeneration is. And that new nature is the platform in which God works within our lives to create and to allow us to become that new creation in Christ. Now, these words that we've discussed this morning in closing were not written to examine others around us, but were meant to examine ourselves. The first question I have for you is, do you have a new nature within you? Or, am I mere, or are you merely pretending to be a Christian? That's a good question. I'd rather ask it now. I'd rather offend your sensibilities a little bit now that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you have that new nature within you? Or are you simply pretending to be a Christian? Do you cultivate that new nature daily through reading of the Bible and prayer? Do you take time each and every day to feed your spirit, therefore diminishing the effects of the lusts of the flesh and growing in the image and the nature of God through simply your time reading the Word and in prayer. Has any unconfessed sin, number three, defiled your inner man or your inner woman, your spirit? And are you willing this morning to forsake that sin that you may be whole before Him today? Not that that sin has severed you from the body of Christ, But that sin is hindering what God would want to do in your life. And it's much better to forsake it now and let God have that perfect work in you. As Jude wrote, he says, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in that place where God can bless you. Number four, 
Do, I, do you allow your old nature to control your thoughts and desires? Or does the new nature rule me today? Good question. And number five, when temptations come, do you play with it or do you flee from it? Do I immediately yield to my new nature within me or do I look to satisfy the old nature that may remain? This is what John wrote. And if I may, I'd like to close by reading these words again because everything that he evaluated in verses 4 through 10, he predicates with these words. Verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children. Now and what we will be has not yet been revealed, appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure.